New bikes from BMC, Pinarello, and Cervelo. New suspension forks from seemingly everyone. The UCI's moving goalposts, foam tire inserts, and how to remove seized bolts. We're going to be talking about all of that and more on today's Geek Warning podcast from the Escape Collective. I'm James Huang, and I'm joined today by tech editor Dave Rome in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Dave. Hello. Uh, we're also joined by tech editor Ronan McLaughlin in Northern Ireland. Hi, Ronan. Hello. I just realized I have time trial helmet hair. Mm. Uh, so I was That's just okay. fixing that. <laughs> Ace mechanic Zach Edwards from the Boulder Gruppetto is off driving go-karts tonight. I'm a little jealous, I have to admit. Uh, Kaylee's off doing, he's doing God knows what. He's just not here today, but that's okay. How's everyone else doing today? Ronan, you got time trial here, so that suggests to me that you are maybe wearing a time trial helmet at some point. Not not just a time trial helmet, but five different time trial helmets. At the same time, that's quite impressive. No, 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 just uh, one at a time, but um, for a few minutes each, doing, doing some aero testing today. It's the first day we've got with sunshine, dry weather, and no wind uh, in Ireland here since, uh, I don't know, probably last year, so... Made the most of it with a bit of aero testing today. Mm, okay. so it's the only only day of the year that you get to do that. Then <laughs> it's uh, the first and last day of summer. Yes, <laughs> excellent, excellent. Straight into winter for you then. <laughs> yep. S- speaking of winter, Dave, you are you are your summer's ending actually, just as ours is beginning. Yeah, I I actually uh, am sitting here with a jumper on and uh, and a heater. I'm actually need to turn the heater off. It's already too warm. But uh, yeah. Uh, I'm missing I'm missing the warm weather, but it's it'll be back. Well, I dare say I know what your winters are like, and they're not really winter, so I don't feel mild. too bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, today's episode of Geek Warning is brought to you by you, actually. Uh, the Escape Collective, which is what brings you Geek Warning, is it's a member-powered publication funded by our readers and listeners, meaning that we have no ads here on the Geek Warning podcast. So if you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a member of the Escape Collective. And if you're already a member, thank you, first of all. Uh, and please mention us to your writing friends. So with that, shameless self-promotion, I should say, let's go ahead and get into the news today, shall we? Ronan, I want to start with you. Uh, you spotted a new time trial bike from BMC. Uh, some comments have said that it looks a lot like the old BMC time trial bike, but uh, I think we beg to differ. Um, yeah, this bike's it popped up at the Tour de Romandie, uh, and I hadn't actually caught the Tour de Romandie time trial on TV, but when I was looking for photos of Rui Costa's uh, mishap on the start ramp where he had the wrong chainring bolts on his bike, which then gave way because they were one-by-bolts instead of two-by-bolts, uh, and caused him, well, he actually didn't crash, but he kept it upright, hurt his knee, anyway, took him out of the race, and I was reporting on that a couple of days later, looking for photos of him, and found uh, a photo of Tom Bowley from the Tudor Pro Cycling Team riding a new BMC time trial bike, and I think maybe the confusion might have been that it looks a little bit, or at least resembles and borrows some shaping from the Red Bull Racing Partnership that BMC had last year and looks a bit like that because as for the existing UCI legal time machine 01 disc, as I think it's called, the the current time trial bike from BMC, yeah, the, this new thing doesn't really look like that at, at all. Uh, it says BMC, but apart from that, it's entirely different. <laughs> um, yeah, it but, se- seems like apart from like kind of BMC's typical kind of like angular styling cues, then it, there's quite a lot different here. Yeah, like the 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 new bike, it, it 
it's probably easiest to start with what it does share with that uh, Red Bull racing bike that popped up last year because I think pretty much everybody has seen that. Uh, and that's sort of the, the head tube is, is very similar there. Uh, the fork crown or uh, I'm sort of almost tempted to call it a, a, a fork wing because it's so wide and sort of flat shaped there at the front. The fork legs look very similar. The down tube and the seat tube all look very similar to that Red Bull racing bike. But I think the the most notable differences are certainly in the chain stays because as I said in that article, the rear wheel is now in the same time zone as the rest of the bike, uh, which is a good start. Um, and then I think most interestingly is actually the top tube, which is not really a tube that's usually all that interesting uh, but in this case it is because it tapers from the sort of wide and and yeah just a, the the sort of top tube you would expect in a time trial bike to a to a tube that's almost entirely flat where it where it meets the the seat tube uh, and i found that pretty pretty interesting um and and it, it's probably only possible just because of the relaxed UCI regulations that now permit a tube to be right down to 10 millimeters in, in thickness. Previously, that had to be a minimum of 25 millimeters. So that's something new that's possible thanks to a relaxation of the UCI rules. Um, but as to why it's there, you know, there's no comment from BMC, so we can probably only speculate it's possibly something to do with comfort. Uh, and in my discussions with another um engineer let's say from another brand um they speculated it may be something to do with helping with the frontal impact tests that that these bikes have to go through as well that there might be uh some intentional flex in that area that uh both improves comfort uh, and also helps with passing those tests and by putting it up there in the top tube which is sort of in line with the flow, uh, there's no real aerodynamic penalty for for having it there. So, be interesting to hear what what BMC do uh, come out with when they, when they officially launch this bike. I'm given that it's already early May at this point, and the bike has is obviously in competition. Uh, would would it be safe to guess that we're going to see some sort of official launch of this thing? I would have to think pre tour, right? Well, I mean. Uh, it seems a bit soon or close to the Giro right now for for it to come out of the Giro. Um, so then the next logical time would be around the, the Tour, with the only possible exception being the Dauphiné or, or Tour of Switzerland might be more appropriate for BMC. So uh, I would say we'll see it in the not-too-distant future. But, um, well, uh, it'll probably come as no surprise to you, but bike brands don't tend to sell... A whole load of these time trial bikes. Um, they're, not, they're they're not the most popular uh, line in the, in their in their range. So you may only see one of these if you happen to go to one of the world tour races or, or something like that. It's it's it may be unlikely that you see one uh, in in the caravan. I would I would say uh, that especially applies to BMC, who have a bit of a history of doing pretty special time trial bikes like the. The TTO one from probably a decade ago, probably even more now, was like a a thing made in Switzerland, I believe, um, with like a local contract manufacturer. It was made to order. It was basically, you had like a custom cockpit on it with each order, and that thing was astronomically high priced at the, at the time. I think it was like, from memory, it was like 20000 Australian for a frame set module. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, BMC definitely have a, a history of trying to push the boundaries in this space without the expectation of selling their things. Uh, and if the rumors I'm hearing are correct, they actually have another couple of like think of all the development, all the cost it goes into to producing a time trial bike like this. Apparently, there's two other triathlon, either prototypes or sort of new triathlon bikes uh, within the triathlon scene at the moment. So that the, if you then consider the Red Bull racing bike that came out last year, there's four new time trial bikes that BMC <laughs> have developed. And yeah, they might sell four also. <laughs> I mean, the fact that BMC seems to be putting in an awful lot of resources into bikes that clearly aren't going to see a whole lot of you know, widespread commercial success uh, perhaps leads into the next little bit of BMC related news that we, uh, I guess, Ronan, you picked up on the other day. Uh, it sounds like BMC, the company, may actually be thinking about going up for sale. Uh, yeah, it was Bloomberg who reported last week that BMC has hired investment banking firm Elantra uh, to consider potential options, including a sale. Um, to probably say that you know there's there's no guarantee that a sale will be the outcome, or they're even looking to sell at the moment, but they're they're certainly considering it, um, and and wouldn't comment on the matter. Uh, and Elantra, that the the other the investment banking firm that was named there, they have a bit of history in these sorts of things, in that they were. Uh, well, they advised El is it El Caterons, uh, the the branded or the um, sort of umbrella firm that that acquired Panarello back in 2016, uh, and Elantra. They also were involved in the 40 percent uh, or the sale of 40 percent stake in. I'm going to try and pronounce this, but I'm probably going to butcher it. Uh, Manifatura Valsic. Simol, something like that. <laughs> Whose brands what include both, both both Sportful <laughs> and Castelli. I'm going to assume it's it's Italian, given that their brands include Sportful and Castelli. So, um, and st- sticking with those uh, Italian brands, the same article reported that actually, uh, El, El, yeah, I'm not even going to try that again. But basically, Panarello may also be for sale, according to an Italian financial oh, wow. newspaper. Again, uh, yeah, with BMC, I guess it's worth noting that uh, it was founded by um, Swiss millionaire, potentially billionaire, Andy Reese, who who passed away a few years ago. And was it founded uh, or did I, I always thought he acquired it like very, very early? But yeah, my understanding was that he acquired it, mm. um, but. Uh, if I understand correctly, and, and I, I certainly didn't verify this before we started recording, but my understanding is that uh, I think BMC started as maybe like a tiny mountain bike company, I think. They, they started as a bicycle importer for Switzerland. I think they were doing Schwinn off the top of my head uh, or, or one of those, a brand like that at least. Uh, and then they, they basically developed their own mountain bike, I believe. And then I think Andy Reese came into the picture not long after that. But certainly like the BMC that everyone knows, like, you know, the the Phonak sponsorships and all that, like Andy Reese was a a key head of of Phonak and that's where that all came from. So I mean, yeah, he he definitely I guess created the brand that's that's known today. Um but yeah, I guess with his with his passing a few years ago, it makes sense that BMC might be you know looking for uh for new ownership. Well BMC has always been a really interesting brand because although they are really pretty relatively small in terms of sales volume and that sort of thing. It's always seemed to me 
to be a brand that punched pretty well above their weight uh, in terms of what they offered and technology and that sort of thing. Um, but my understanding had always been that it was largely because Andy Reese was always willing to inject so much of his own personal fortune into the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't remember how many years ago this was, but I know that BMC, uh, you know, there was a lot of talk internally about how it needed to be a company, be a brand that was able to stand on its own financially. Um, and this was prior to Andy Reese's passing. So I don't really know what has happened since then. Um, but my guess is, I, I think, well, I think it seems safe to say that if your primary benefactor is no longer alive, then there are probably some questions as to what happens to the brand. Um, so that, that remains to be seen. But if indeed BMC is looking for a buyer, uh, I mean, who, who knows what their financials look like at this point? But I mean, the brand does do an awful lot of really, really cool stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, I hope wherever it ends up that it continues to resemble the BMC that we know because they they really do push the envelope and they they can be credited whether they love it or hate it. They can be credited for a lot of uh, a lot of current trends in the in the industry. Um, you know, they they often first to a lot of ideas that then become uh, more commonplace. So uh, definitely a very innovative company. Ronan, you mentioned Pinarello just a second ago, and you, I guess even if the company is for sale, that that's a brand that certainly seems to be very financially healthy. Um, but uh, you know, Pinarello is a brand that's super well known in the road bike space, and they're getting increasingly well known in the gravel space. Um, however, they also seem to be getting back into the mountain bike world. What do we have there, Dave? God, yeah, I thought you were uh, going to ask me there. Oh, Ronan, what, what, what do we have here? <laughs> no, no, um, that was just it was a relief that he wasn't going to throw mountain bike to me there. <laughs> uh, yeah, the the latest round of the the French Cup mountain bike race, it's kind of like a precursor to the World Cups. Uh, saw Tom Pidcock line up in the men's and um, Pauline Ferrand Prevost line up in the women's, and and then subsequently win the women's race, uh, both on the the typical uh, black and white camouflage kind of. Uh, bike which is a, a brand's way of telling you that something is new and uh potentially not a prototype uh i mean in the car world that sort of camouflage is always used for for testing prototypes but uh in the bicycle world it's more used as a marketing activation to to tell you that something's about to be revealed uh and yeah it was uh there's been rumors floating around for well over a year that pinarello was looking to get back into into the mountain bike space, especially given that Ineos has some of the best mountain bike athletes. Uh, so yeah, this does appear to be a new cross-country full suspension bike from Pinarello, uh, which they previously were playing in the space with the Dogma XM, um, which they introduced in about 2013, and then kept selling it until 2018 when it was truly out of date. Uh, so yeah, it's it's an interesting bike. By looks of it, it, it appears to sort of play with similar concepts to a lot of other bikes which is like to have a horizontally placed rear shock beneath the top tube uh with a a swing link it it looks to have um james's favorite internal cable routing through the headsets uh it also has a bit of a a strange thing above the bottom bracket which is basically like a, a a tiny little triangle above the bottom bracket uh which is then hollow so there's like a little open space um within the triangle above the bottom bracket, which I suspect is probably just Pinarello adding a little bit of a design flourish, but maybe you could use it to 
stick a Tubalito tube in. Maybe they're going to keep it for perhaps something like what we've seen at BMC, which is like a, a chamber to pressurize a dropper post. So it, 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 you create an automatic drop down dropper post. So who knows? It's either way, it's there. It's where the, it's where the motor goes, Dave. Ah, is that what it is? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so, uh, but yeah, it's certainly, uh, I mean, it won its first outing under Pauline and uh, it's going to be astronomically expensive. We know that much. And yeah, the other thing on this bike were, were new wheels. Uh, it looks like Princeton Carbon Works have a mountain bike wheel. Uh, maybe. James, sort what of. do you think? I, it's, it, it does definitely bear a lot of typical Princeton Carbon Works design cues. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my understanding is that this is a separate entity from oh. sort of similar people, but it's uh uh runner, I think it's called like P1 race technologies or something, I think. Uh I've just closed that, give me two seconds. It's something like that, yeah. P1 race tech. Yeah, P1 so race uh, so it, it seems to be like maybe like an off off-road sub brand or a separate entity from the Princeton Carbon Works people. Um, but, uh, yeah, we don't really know a whole lot about those wheels just yet. Uh, they do have sort of a, a similar differential rim depth, uh, like a wavy rim profile, like what we've seen in Princeton Carbon Works road wheels and gravel wheels. Um, they're surprisingly deep for a mountain bike wheel, which, um, I think it's very debatable if that's a good or a bad thing, but maybe they're going after some sort of arrow thing here potentially, but, um, don't really know a whole lot about them just yet, but. Uh, I, I would be it would be really curious to see if these wheels do kind of take off or at least even that style of wheel um, because aero efficiency is obviously really important on the in road racing um, so that's where a lot of the attention has been for, for road wheel development but we haven't seen that in mountain bike wheels uh, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that you don't necessarily want wheels that are super stiff mountain biking um, but I mean Cross country is all about going fast, and yeah. if a stiff wheel it can can get the job done and maybe save a little bit here and there, then maybe that'll work. Who knows? I mean, the the average speeds are definitely getting high enough where where aerodynamics are a factor, and we we know that in mountain biking, uh, some of the athletes have been experimenting and and refining themselves in in wind tunnels uh that applies to both cross country and downhill uh in cross country we've seen it for a few years where they're now using things like you know they're mostly in skin suits they're now using uh, a lot of them are using aero helmets as well so wouldn't be too surprising if if uh this company's trying to find some gains in the wheels but yeah as you said it's it's a tough balance it's probably a lot more difficult given the width of the tire also to get Mm -hmm. sort of any aero benefit from the rim Yes, you would, you would yeah. imagine. Yeah, because yeah, the tire width. I mean, assuming the course is dry and it's not a muddy day, they're they're probably minimum two point three inch wide these days. So big, big tire, lotted, lotted, lot of tire. Um, well, we'll we'll keep an eye on this one and see what what we can find out about these new bikes. But um, sort of another road, I guess another primarily road brand that we know is also getting into the cross country space um, or I guess getting deeper into the cross country space, I should say is Cervelo who uh, they already have a, uh, a mountain bike hardtail in the lineup. Um, but uh, this isn't exactly super new news uh, because uh, I know as of last October or so, and we saw, uh, we saw some riders on what appeared to be a prototype Cervelo full suspension bike. Um, and we haven't necessarily seen that bike out in the wild 
a whole lot since then. However, the Yumbo Visma squad, which is uh, which is which uses Cervelo bikes, they recently signed Milan Vader, uh, who uh, is definitely a big player in cross country mountain biking. And it's hard to imagine that they would sign someone like someone like that who plans to continue racing on the mountain bike uh, mountain bike circuit without having some sort of full suspension bike in the lineup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got Olympic uh, aspirations, I believe. Is is the goal with with such a bike? So, um, yeah, I mean, again, it looks it looks familiar, James. It's definitely a very yeah, definitely a similar theme that we see on a lot of these cross country full suspension bikes. Uh, you know, swing link driven single pivot bike, essentially uh, super light carbon fiber, of course. Um, I guess what's curious or what's interesting about this setup is uh, Cervelo is under the Pond Holdings umbrella, which is uh, share space with brands like, you know, like Cannondale and Santa Cruz and that sort of thing. Um, and this bike very much looks like a Santa Cruz blur, although we can at least tell that it's not a current Santa Cruz blur. Uh, however, exactly how it's different, we don't really know for sure. Um, can't really can't really say that conclusively, but uh, so- something something's cooking here and mm what we're going to find out about that soon. Um, we also have a whole bunch of new stuff that's popping out in the cross country space up front, uh, because seemingly every company yeah, integrated has cable new... routing. Mm. See, <laughs> Dave, I'm going to have to cut off your mic pretty soon here. <laughs> um, see, seemingly every company out there now has a, uh, a new cross country suspension fork in the works, right? Yeah, it seems that way. I mean, I've I've been spotting a few uh, as of late. So from Cape Epic and and since then, and even before then, uh, yeah, there, there's quite a few new forks. So uh, I've seen a, a new prototype Manitou R7 on the front of Sevilla Blanc's bike, um, or an R, an R an R something. Yeah, uh, I'm assuming it's an R7 because that's an existing model name, and model names are hard, so they tend to recycle them. Uh, on the front of Nino's bike at Cape Epic, I spotted a new t- prototype RockShox Sid, which looked—I could only tell it was new based on the crown. I, I really don't know what else they've changed with it. Uh, Jordan Saru on a BMC had an Olin's XE suspension fork, which uh, would would mean a new category for Olin's. I mean, they've been playing in the gravity space for some time, and they've they've also got trail forks now. But yeah, lightweight XE fork isn't something we've previously seen from them. Uh, and then this this new Pinarello that we're just talking about uh, on the front of that is um, the SR Sun Tour suspension that that Pidcock's been on for like the last two seasons. He raced that to his uh, Olympic win. Uh, it's got sort of electronic controls on it. They they've been pretty quiet about what those electronic controls do exactly. It's um, but given that it's linked to the damper side, we can probably assume it's it's kind of lockout related. Uh, but yeah, there's there seems to be a lot of uh, activity in the space, uh, and I'm all for it. Yeah, I think I mean we've talked about this already before in previous shows, but there certainly is a lot of indication that there's like the cross country world is heating up in a big way. Like not even just in terms of the racing and the competition, but uh, brands clearly are seeing a lot of uh, a lot of renewed attention, a lot of renewed focus, a lot of growth potential. I'm guessing. Um, and you know, as Zach, as Zach said in last week's show, I think as bikes got bigger and longer travel and heavier, then I think we may be seeing the pendulum swing in the other direction with people suddenly realizing like, yeah, you know, I don't know if I really want to pedal a bike that has, you know, this much weight and 160 mils of travel all the time. Yeah. I mean, the other, the other thing that's on top of my mind is what's causing so much 
growth and, and excitement in XC is uh, the budgets of road teams are getting involved, right? You've got previously you'd you'd have Nino who's a su- superstar and probably paid multiple factors more than many of his competitors. Uh, but now you've got the likes of um, Vanderpoel and you've got Pidcock and you've got Milan um, Vader and you've got all these these riders that that have the backing of these super super teams and the the marketing budgets and the I guess the notoriety that these teams bring and they're they're all yeah pitching up at these races and bringing far more attention to them than previous. So it's I guess it's opening the sport up to a, a whole new market, which is is really cool to see. Um, but going back to the forks, James, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Uh, with all these new forks that we're seeing, um, I mean, basically, the problem with seeing new suspension forks is you kind of only can see the outside of it. But what really matters is what's on the inside. Ah, uh, uh, um, and what I would say is, I guess in my mind, ah. Uh, I am seeing a trend of probably larger stanchion diameters than what we've previously seen in cross country to make the forks stiffer. But James, what would you like to see? What what do you look for in a cross country race fork, and what what do you hope are inside of these? Um, I mean, I can at least say what I think I expect to see in a lot of these forks, which. Um, for XE, obviously, it's there's a big focus on weight. Uh, although there's a bigger focus, I would say, on efficiency. Um, like with this SID, for example, um, you know, RockShox came out with that flight attendant setup not too long ago. Um, it's sort of like a, a electronic terrain sensing system that automatically adjusted damper settings and whatnot for fork and the shock and everything. Um, and that system doesn't currently exist for the SID. Um, and it's not that big of a stretch to imagine that it might. Um, and for forks that have less travel, like, like a Sid would, like 100, 120 mil, probably 120 mil, um, you know, that system maybe wouldn't have to be as, as sophisticated. Um, it could potentially even just be like a simple on off, uh, although that seems maybe a little unlikely. Um, but that sort of thing seems like something that, that, that SRAM and RockShox could very likely be playing in because they are making a much bigger emphasis on electronics and sensors and that sort of thing. Um, Manitou is an interesting one because they have been historically, they've been a really big player in the cross country space and um, they just haven't really, they've never really regained the kind of the glory days of old um, in, in recent years for, for a variety of reasons, I think, but I don't think it's necessarily because of the product except product itself, because they're the stuff that they make now is actually really, really good. Um, It's mostly been sort of like a, like an awareness and marketing sort of uh, uh, sort of lag on their part. But for this new Manitou, you know, Manitou hasn't, hasn't really been, been big on electronics for suspension stuff anyway. Um, and my guess is, um, I mean, again, this is my guess, but I would have to think that uh, from what we can tell on this new R7, 8, 8 7.4, whatever, um, it, it seems like it, my guess is that they have made it a fair bit lighter. Um, because I think that's where, that's where they potentially have the most to gain. Um, uh, but as far as electronics go, that, that SR Suntour fork, however, that looks like it definitely has some sort of electronics box on top of that damper. Um, so that seems to be another place where electronics or another brand where electronics are, are coming to the fore for cross country suspension. Um, who knows what's happening there? Um, hard to say. Um, and then the Olin's, 
just given that company's history, it's got to be some sort of advanced, some sort of advanced damper technology. Um, Olin's has always banked on uh, their 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 damper quality, their damper sophistication, like all the the the, the various circuit design and that sort of thing. Um, my guess is that Olin's would be banking more on that fork's ability to kind of provide better traction and ride control and that sort of thing. The other thing with Olin's is that they don't really have. Uh, you look at every other of those brands, and they kind of have to have like a an OE friendly product, so they have to have a product that they can make more affordable so they might have the top end version but they have to have a, a model that they can down spec for for um yeah i guess sending out on well-priced bikes whereas olin's doesn't really have that i mean they're they're very premium brands so, i mean they can just go all out on this thing without having to to think about the the scalability of it so um yeah i mean i'm i wouldn't be surprised if this like sees the return of say like a carbon fiber um crown steerer unit for example which is something RockShox uh, did many years ago. Uh, whether that's a good thing remains to be seen, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if they've sort of gone that way to, to save weight while um, you know, having what you're saying, James, which is superior damping. Yeah, I mean, uh, for all this stuff, I, I'd imagine we will find out more about this stuff as the World Cup cross-country season kicks off, uh, which is going to be in the Czech Republic in just a couple weeks at this point. Um, and speaking of which, I don't know if we've made the announcement yet, have we? But uh, we are diving into cross-country mountain bike coverage on the Escape Collective, uh, specifically with the World Cup circuit. So, uh, yeah, on request you, from Ronan. Uh, yeah, on request from Ronan, indeed. Um, but uh, a lot of regular readers may have noticed that we have been including a lot more cross-country mountain bike stuff in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and that is not a fluke. Uh, that is just a sign of things to come. So stay tuned for more on there. Um, my other my other request on this topic of suspension is early nineteen nineties F one style active suspension, please. Just where it completely levels out the rest. It, it yeah, active suspension. That's that's what I want somebody to go away and work on. Mm, that sounds possible, but heavy. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Dave, another thing that you mentioned just a minute ago was was how uh, Olin's kind of had the freedom to kind of play in the premium space since they didn't really need to bring prices down for OE and that sort of thing. But speaking yeah. of price drops, um, you picked mm. up on something that was pretty interesting and actually a really good news uh, yeah. from from Lauf, the Icelandic brand that's kind of with all the gravel bike stuff. Uh, yeah. What what are they got going on here? Uh, they've announced that they've they're now uh, assembling certain models uh, in the US, and as a result of that, there's I guess freight and logistic. Uh, advantages to that that have uh, allowed them to reduce prices uh truthfully and this is going to sound a little bitter normally when brands realize these efficiencies they uh increase profits but not reduce prices and uh i have to say lauf is is killing it so the siegler is uh is a bike i reviewed and james i think you you also helped me review it um at the last place uh and i was really impressed by this bike um super capable super versatile bike some very smart features, enormous tire clearance uh, for a gravel bike. It looked um, good too. It looked good. But what really stood out at the time was that the price, the value was just almost unbeatable. Like it really was a lot of bike for not a huge amount of money. And that was at a time where everyone else had raised their prices because they could. Anyway, Lauf have taken those low prices and made them lower. So 
If you're in the US, uh, basically every bike drops between 400 and 1,000 US dollars. Uh, so for example, you can now get the Lauf Siegler with a rigid fork uh, with the Force Explore group set, a dual-sided power meter, carbon handlebar and seat post, uh, good tires, and E13's carbon wheels uh, for US $4,140. By comparison, uh, just one model, not to pick on anyone in particular, but uh, a Trek Checkpoint SL7 Axis, which also has uh, force, no power meter, uh, no carbon handlebars, but does have carbon wheels, carbon seat posts. Um, that is $6,700. I mean, that's a big, big, big difference. Yeah. Uh, and particularly given that Lauf is not a brand that... It's not something that we typically think of as a budget brand, and that's certainly not what they've kind of built their reputation on. Um, and even even compared to like a consumer direct brand like Car- uh, like Canyon, for example, like a brand that's kind of built its reputation on that, that is a killer price for a bike like that. Like absolutely astounding. Yes. Yeah. So and, and like yeah, I guess it's worth reiterating that like this isn't this isn't any generic frame that that's offering a good part spec i mean this frame is as unique as they come so it's uh yeah i i really love this because it's just such it's a very good bike it's a it's a great handling bike it's it's a great performing bike and the fact that it's uh i guess as cheap as anything else on the market is is sort of uh for me it's it's telling the industry to do better well that and i think uh i wonder if lauf has got a good finger on the pulse of consumers in the sense that people are really tired of these grossly inflated prices that we're seeing everywhere. Um, and there is definitely a sense that these prices are going up, not necessarily because they have to, uh, but more because they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're seeing, we're, and to, to be clear, we're seeing that in a whole bunch of different industries, not just in the bike industry. Um, but if that is what Lauf is thinking about, um, and if they can actually afford to pull this off and if they're able to pass on the savings to consumers, then that's awesome. Yeah. Good to hear it. Yeah. I, I guess uh, on the, on the raising prices across the industry, we are seeing some sort of a reversal on that now as demand has dwindled. We are seeing brands put bikes on sale and then all of a sudden not take them off sale. And then that just slowly becomes the new the new retail price. Um, I mean, we've certainly seen that with Specialized comes to mind where, uh, yeah, I mean, the bikes just quietly change in price. Uh, but yeah, either way, it's a trend I like and, and Laufa are very much setting a, a very high bar here for, for the value for money you can get. Yeah. I mean, certainly in a lot of, I, I had more than a handful of conversations at, uh, at Seattle with various industry people and the overall trend that I got was that uh, this certainly affects some companies more than others, but there are definitely a lot of companies out there that are absolutely, absolutely buried in excess inventory at the moment. Um, so if you are listening to this right now and you have been holding out to get a new bike, oh, now is a really, really, really good time. Yep. All right. Well, I guess moving on to somewhat more perplexing news, I should say, and certainly not necessarily, well, seemingly not good news uh ronan you stumbled upon uh some i guess some happenings at the uci uh because they have some sort of new equipment registration process that you found right what what are we looking at here what is this thing yeah it's very much still a story that i'm uh working on uh 
putting a bit of pressure on myself now to have it finished before we publish this podcast. Um, but anyway, this is the new equipment registration process that will only apply for the 2023 Tour de France and Tour de France Femme Avex WIFT. Um, and reading into it, so th- this is a draft document that I got my hands on uh, and reading through the 17-page document, it's basically... Uh, a move that the UCA has made. Uh, they've they've cited some of their regulations that outline specific obligations aimed at promoting fair and equitable access to equipment. And they are now to try and ensure that the rules that they already have in place, namely the frame approval process, the wheel approval process, the uh, equipment registration for the Olympics, and to ensure that those rules are adhered to, they are now going to implement for this year's, or it's it looks like they will uh, implement for this year's, both this year's Tour de France, um, a registration process that will be the responsibility of the teams to register what the UCI have deemed critical equipment. And their critical equipment list includes the frame set, frame sets, so fork and seat posts as well, wheels, handlebars, TT handlebars, time trial extensions, clothing and helmets both standard and time trial and this is all pretty short notice because teams are going to have to register all their equipment on the UCI's database by the 2nd of June for the men's tour and the 17th of June for the women's tour and all this equipment will then have to be presented to UCI staff and approved uh individuals on the ground at the Grand Depart of both tours for the UCA to then apply RFID tags to frames. Uh, not sure what's going to happen with the with the other uh, critical equipment, but certainly frames are going to be apply, uh, have a RFID tag a- attached to them uh, after, th- after the staff on the ground have checked that they do conform with the, the homologated version of that frame that the UCI had seen previously. So they're going to weigh it, they're going to measure it, they're going to scan it, I think, as well, if I remember correctly. I hope they um, upload it to Weight Weenies. Yes, that would be great <laughs> if they would do that, yeah. It'd be an instant, instant boost in the Weight Weenies database. Yeah, no I mean, question. they haven't updated those listings since the since 2000, <laughs> so it'd be a perfect opportunity. There, there are, I think there are t- attempts from time to time to get those sort of updated uh, or get the updates going on those again. But uh, if the UCI could do that for us, that would be that would be great. Um, <laughs> but but yeah, all this sort of you know begs the question as to who the heck is going to do all this work. Um, because it, it is an, a, a mountain of extra work, both on the team side and the UCA side. It sounds like a logistical nightmare waiting for the start of the tour. Well, yes. it, it it sounds like a logistical nightmare, but it also sounds like, to me, it, it really sounds like kind of a gross underestimation on the UCI's part of how big an undertaking this might be given the timelines that we're talking about here. I mean, it's, we're recording this on Tuesday, May 2nd. And Ronan, you're saying that essentially all of the teams, you know, everything on that list that you mentioned, like all the essential hardware and, and clothing, in fact, has to be kind of documented and inspected and verified and all this other stuff. Like it, within a month's time it's submitted and then UCI has to approve it or disapprove it or whatever. Like, like what, what are they trying to do here? 
Yeah, it's, it's probably worth saying, first of all, we have reached out to the UCI for a comment on this and they have requested more time to, to come back to some of the questions that I raised with them. And, and there was, I think, 13 or 14 different questions I had off the, the back of this. So that, that seems fair enough that, it was that a lot. we would give them extra it was a long time. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm reserving judgment on whether this is a, a good, bad or indifferent thing. Um, the thing that strikes me is that the document that I have received is dated the 6th of April. Um, it, it does say 2003, but I think that's a typo. It should be 2023. Uh, it is, it is a draft. Uh, I'll just mention that once again. Uh, and so there is actually no guarantee this will actually even happen, but, uh, it does state the 6th of April, which suggests it's, you know, less than a month since this was circulated, um, with, with, with the various different stakeholders. Uh, and within the draft, it also mentions a test at the Tour de Romandy where these RFID tags would be applied. Interestingly, the UCI want them applied on the underside of the top tube. Uh, and I quote now, so that they are concealed from the general public, the view of the general public, which seems strange to me. I'm not sure why they would have to be concealed from view. Uh, but that area is, it is, is uh, presumably also helps with you know keeping them out of the way of uh the elements and and that so um yeah so it is all very very last minute and it's very very last minute and a lot of work to ensure that rules that should already be followed are being adhered to which is the sort of the strangest th- part to me the the thing and this is a very minor thing but during the tour, like crashes happen, right? Like any bike race crashes happen. But during the tour, because it's such a important event, brands and, and teams do often go to efforts to get XX stock delivered mid-race. Oh, I think uh, I know where you you're know, going. You know, so the, more wheels, more frames delivered. Perhaps a rider uh, surprises the team and ends up winning a certain colored jersey. And then that is known to prompt painters to not get any sleep that night and then to often drive frames across borders to deliver them for mechanics at two in the morning to get built i mean this happens every year what how does this get you know how how does that all happen now like will we believe it or not the yellow frame believe it or not any frame that gets that treatment or any additional frames that teams need during the tour have to go through the same process and have to be presented to a UCI staff member on the ground to have the RFID tag attached. Um, so they can and, get it. You think they can get further frames the, added? Yeah, the, the document specifically references a few examples at the end of, I think, okay. five different examples. Um, and, and and one of the references is what happens if a team needs extra frames delivered or, gotcha. or whatever it may okay. be. So, Ronan, if, if the UCI has supposedly already accounted for riders and teams potentially needing additional stuff, uh, like, say, during the tour, you know, it sounds like they're insisting that that equipment also go through this approval process. But given that a lot of that stuff barely barely makes it back to the race in time as it is how is this going to happen because you're talking about you're talking about frames needing to be like weighed and potentially scanned and you know measured in various ways and whatnot and essentially what it sounds to me again like this is pending uci getting back to us but it sounds like what they are trying to do is just confirm that teams are actually using commercially available stuff um but how on earth are they going to do that on these such short timelines? Like, like they're not going to like verify carbon layups and stuff like that. Like they can't do that. How is this going to be possible? Well, that, that's the interesting thing here. Com- the, definitely the commercialization element of it is, is a big, uh, a big part of what 
has motivated the UCI here. I think uh, there's a lot of mention of the commercialization rules within this draft document. Um, but interestingly, one of the things I picked up on was that uh, somewhere in the document it mentions that every single frame a team wishes to use must be presented to the UCA, but for all the other equipment, so wheels, helmet, handlebars, etc., one sample of that line is sufficient. So you can just bring, you know, one uh, skin suit, and they will check that conforms with the the regs or whatever, and then it, it's it's fine for everybody else. Which thinking of skin suits and how critical uh, the sort of aerodynamic developments have been there recently and time trial extensions also, which are listed in critical equipment, but one sample of those will do how, how they can vary from rider to rider with the custom versions that they have nowadays strikes me as a bit odd that, um, you know, to, to me, it would be the other way around a frame that has gone through a frame approval process. Surely one frame would suffice and then the custom parts that we're seeing with skin suits and, and time trial extensions would have to be every uh, every uh, sample taken to the UCA. And that sort of, given that it's the other way around, that sort of leads me to question, are the UCA implementing this because they feel that the, that the frame rules or the frames that teams are using do not entirely conform with the frames that are being homologated previously? Uh, and is that part of the motivation? I also just don't see how this process actually achieves what they're potentially trying to achieve with oh, it. But, because but, the way, <laughs> Dave, like Dave, hold on, I'm I'm going to cut you off right there. I'm I'm, I'm not even going to let you continue because I just want to remind you, yes. we are talking about the UCI here. All right, but let me continue. Okay. So, no, 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 no. I I I I I'm gonna I'm gonna cut us off on this one mainly because we have yet to hear from the UCI uh, from mm-hmm. from as far as responses to Ronan's questions. And this is going to be a big discussion, and we can continue on this for quite some time. And I would like to continue this discussion on the next episode after we hear okay. back from the UCI. All right. Be- before before we do move on, perhaps in uh, in the name of efficiency for the rest of the episode, I might get my on my mind off my chest uh, right now. And that since I've been thinking about this, I was previously working on an article with uh, Eric Brunsford, who uh, authored the. From Marginal Gains to a Circular Revolution book a couple of years ago. James, I think you've spoke to him previously. Um, and ac- and this is partially why I'm I'm still reserving judgment on, on the UCA uh, process that they're planning to implement because I think potentially the you know for for all the regulations that the UCA introduce, perhaps they're just directing their energies in the wrong direction. And if they actually if if they actually moved away from trying to regulate to level the playing field and regulate towards a more sustainable and reusable and environmentally friendly professional racing scene, it could actually motivate the entire industry to move in the same direction, given how if you just think about the frame of approval process, which is central to all this, and how instrumental that has been on the design of every bike shop we see in our local bike shops, despite the fact it does not apply whatsoever unless you're going to do a UCA sanctioned event. But still, all the frames have the UCA approved frame uh, tag. It's not any sort of safety standard. It's just to say it conforms with their regulations. And even if you're not going racing, your bike still conforms to those regulations. And I would like to see if they 
just picked a date, I don't know, five, ten years from now, and they said from from this point onwards, um, we are only going to approve frames that are made with bio-based fibers and bio-based resins, and from this point onwards, we're only going to approve frames that have this bottom bracket standard and have this shape of fork steer and have a standard for free hub bodies so the cassettes are interchangeable between group sets and and they do actually they've already proved with the frame proof approval process they have the power to do this and the industry will follow or just safely survive certain crash parameters right yeah well disposable exactly and the the, The big one, believe it or not, the big one I think that is the key and that's part of what I've been working on with Eric is actually an increase in the minimum weight of a mm-hmm. bike. Uh, yep. And if we Im- increase that, it then gives manufacturers the freedom to use bio-based materials, which will be heavier, and build frames that may last longer uh, because they don't have to be at 6.8 or whatever. So that's my on my like mind, it. off my chest, and mm. all in the name of efficiency. It's a good one. I, I I dare say I mean as as much as I like the idea of that I <laughs> don't spoil uh, for me don't <laughs> I mean the, I I hate to say it but the first thing that comes to mind is if the UCI really wanted to make professional road racing or professional cycling more efficient road racing uh, I'm going to cut you off there James sorry we'll save it <laughs> we'll we'll save it <laughs> the Tour de France has been canceled here forever <laughs> no no support vehicles everything will be all 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 21 stages will be based out of a single city. No transfers. Mm. Anyway. Mm. All right. Well, let's, big topic. let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and move on. That, that is a big topic. That is a big topic. And, I, and I, I dare say that might be one that's worth digging into a little bit deeper as well at some point. Um, but uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about before we move into what's on my mind and Dave's mind is uh, uh, foam tire inserts. Because uh, we've been seeing an awful lot more of these things, certainly after the cobbled classics on the roadside, uh, they were all over the place at sea otter and they have been for quite some time, uh, for the, in the mountain bike space, but we're just seeing an awful lot more of these lately. Uh, more brands are getting involved. The brands that are already involved have more models. Uh, they seem to be getting a little bit more widely accepted. Yeah, they, they used to be, there used to be a lot of resistance to these sorts of things. And it used to be that it was only like a downhill and enduro thing, but like they're kind of getting to be everywhere. So like, do we, do we have any thoughts on why these are getting more popular? And like, is it all just hype? Uh, I mean, for one, the, the tech has improved greatly where they, they no longer come with a, an enormous weight disadvantage. So Vittoria just released, uh, their road version, kind of lighter weight insert but for cross-country mountain bike tires which is only 50 grams an insert whereas before you used to think of like cush core which is closer to 200 grams an insert uh so yeah i mean the the weights are definitely coming down so and that was one of the big disadvantages previously um whereas the advantages now are basically that you you know potentially have a, a tire that can be still ridden once flat and it has better i guess less chance of burping the sidewall off if you do use low pressure less chance of damaging a rim and pinch flatting the tire. So, I mean, the, the advantages are, are there and the advantages are actually quite big when you're talking about a lower volume tire, such as a, a gravel tire or a road tire or, yeah, in the case of cross country where where the tire itself is actually quite light and doesn't have the the sidewall stability that, that a, a heavier gravity-focused tire would have. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I'm not surprised that we're seeing drop bar categories and cross country really taking to this tech. 
Um, but at the same time, I actually think I'm seeing a trend of uh, less inserts being run at the gravity side of things. So enduro and downhill, I actually think they're becoming less popular than they were three or four years ago. And a lot of that is uh, new rim technology. They're, they're coming up with, with rims that are wider, but also the, the rim bed and the I guess the sidewall of the rim is not pointy like it used to be. They're now using really flat shapes that you can kind of hit the tire against and it won't pinch flat the tire. Uh, and then the other thing is just tire technology. The the tire manufacturers have come long ways in, in terms of creating sidewalls that are, are more resilient and, and more stable, I guess, uh, in terms of allowing low pressure without folding over. It is kind of ironic, it seems to me, though, that um, as you were saying, Dave, that we're seeing a little bit less use of these things at uh, in those kind of more gravity-focused disciplines. That, mm-hmm. um, it, it's kind of ironic that we're seeing less use of it where it started and more use of it where uh, I, I would argue, like, like you said, it, it actually has the most utility just because we have the smallest air volumes in place. Um, I, I guess we know why there has been so much resistance to the idea, but is it basically just because it's something new? Probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Yeah, it's uh, especially in the road, and I mean, gravel is in many ways follows a, a road industry. Um, I mean, it's it's we're talking pretty traditional industries where uptake of tech can be pretty slow. Ronan, thoughts? Uh, well, the I think the one of the sort of at least on the racing side is uh, on the road is the extra few watts or whatever of rolling resistance or drag that you're going to get by including an insert. Um, I, I guess like. You know, you, you, there's nothing slower than being stopped. Um, so, you know, it, it's one of those. It's going to save you a heck of a lot when it actually works, but the rest of the time it's costing you, and it's weighing up that cost yeah. benefit. Yeah, and the cost benefit, like a lot of these teams, I guess, will typically run inserts at least for road when they think flats are are likely. You know, when they when they think a uh, a sort of uh, impact related sort of pinch flat might be likely. Well, as we've seen in Roubaix. A lot of them opted not to. Um, yep. And and at least um, according to Garen Thomas and Luke Rowe, that was because there's a few watt uh, cost to, to running them and teams didn't want that cost. Um, but I don't know. It, it, especially for that race, probably that race solely on, on the road, that's like guarantee you really should be riding them in, in my opinion uh, the rest of the year it, it really is a, a difficult decision except with the Vittorio ones I think because EF seem to be using those pretty much year round if, if I'm correct and Jumbo Visma were racing with them at, at Flanders also but uh, it'd be interesting to see if they do that for the rest of the season or not yeah I guess the Vittorio ones are a little bit different because yeah, Vittoria, Vittoria claims that when the tire is pressurized, that foam insert kind of self compresses on it. It compresses on itself, so in theory, it really shouldn't have much, if any, impact on the tire's rolling resistance since that insert doesn't really contact much of the casing, seemingly. Um, and then, if you do get a puncture and you lose that pressure, then that's when that foam insert kind of expands to fill more of the tire casing. Um, so theirs is almost at least on the road anyway, that their design is almost designed more for run flat capability than it is for, uh, than it is for tire support at lower pressures since you're not really running lower pressures. And there's no rim protection. Yes, no rim protection. Um, But again, for for traditional road racing, that's not really that big of an issue. Although 
you know, clearly from what we were seeing at this year's Paris-Roubaix in particular with uh, what we were talking about before with presumably rim failures and uh, on Tupa's wheels particularly and how that could potentially relate to tire failures, um, maybe we will see some foam inserts with some more rim protection in the near future. I guess we will we'll find out. Uh, but anyway, just some food for thought. James, uh, you've you've been running various gravel-based tire inserts for some time. Uh, I don't know if you're planning to do a comparison at some point but uh what are your thoughts there what do you if you had to pick one what are you picking uh, i'm a big fan of them for gravel in particular just because uh in the road i don't generally run pressures low enough and my conditions here aren't bad enough uh to you know? to warrant a whole lot of protection like that uh when i'm out on a road ride uh, I do run them on my mountain bike, but because, you know, we have an awful lot of just sharp pointy rocks and stuff here. Um, but gravel is actually where I see the most benefit, uh, mainly because you are essentially running kind of oftentimes you're running stupidly small tires on terrain that you really shouldn't be on. And like you basically need all the help you can get since you're, you know, a lot of times you're running uh, sort of a bad mountain bike <laughs> with tires that are too narrow. Um, but as far as ones that I liked the most so far, uh, I've, I've been most impressed with the ones from Core and Rimpact. Uh, those are the ones that I've seen the biggest benefit from. The, the Vittoria ones have been pretty good, but uh, mostly for kind of like uh, flat protection and uh, I guess run flat capability. But the the Kushkor and the and the and the, uh, the Rimpact ones have been the ones that I've noticed the most casing support and the most ability to run lower pressures without really having to run too much of a risk of a flat. Um, but that's how things are going so far. But I guess that would be a little preview of the comparison article that I am still planning to finish. I recently got the Vittorio ones in. I haven't fitted them yet, but I, I'm just sort of curious to try them on the road. Um, and I don't know, try to figure out a way that I won't have to wait for a puncture to naturally happen. Uh, to uh, see I'm, just- sure you can, <laughs> I'm sure you can figure out a way to make that happen, Ronan. <laughs> yeah pretty sure i can um the, but the only other ones i've ever used are Kushcore on yeah, gravel setup as well uh i i will say if they were a bit easier to fit i might not have broke my leg because i give up on trying to fit them that day uh in cx tires decided to go a little bit harder with the tires because yeah i didn't have the Kushcore in there had I had the Kushkor, I might have been running softer pressures and might have had a bit more grip. Anyway, that's besides the point. So uh, on the gravel fault, setup, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, can, we we can title this episode Kushkor Kushkor broke Rodin's leg. <laughs> yeah, let's um, let's probably not. People may get the wrong idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, to be to be fair, I, I I was using cyclocross specific ones with cyclocross tires and everything. All the dimensions were on the limit of what was compatible. Uh, it was just incredibly hard to fit. Um, but since then, with with the gravel setup, big fan. Yeah, that and that is the obvious downside here with a lot of these. Is uh, there's no denying that it makes fitment a little bit trickier. But for me, it makes tire removal insanely difficult uh like spe- specifically like i'm thinking of i've got a wheel set like a rovar wheel set with continental tires uh on the gravel with um rimpack pro inserts and the rimpack pro inserts i actually found slightly easier to work with than Kushcore, but uh that tire is not coming off when i'm on the trail um whether i want for, it to or not for, for better so or worse. I, I did yeah. get one of the the cyclocross tires fitted that morning uh and yeah six months later when i was yeah not not even considering cyclocross again but just 
needed that rim for whatever had to, I had to cut the tire off. Um, and the problem I have now is that I don't actually ride gravel all that much, but I do have the Cush course still set up in a gravel wheel set. And now I'm wondering, is the sealant, the tubal sealant dry? How do I check if I can't get the tire off, if I have to cut the tire off to check? And yeah. Well, you, so... you, cut the, you cut the tire off to check. And then, <laughs> and then if the sealant is bad that, or dried up, then you install a new tire with fresh sealant. And if the sealant was still good, then you install a new tire with fresh sealant. So <laughs> the, the end result Perfect. is the same. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap up that segment. Uh, Ronan, you've already shared what's on your mind this week. Uh, I have something on my mind, but we're running a little long in this show, so we're just going to go ahead and skip mine for this week. I'll save mine until oh. next week. Oh, but, but I wanted to debate you about it. Oh, you did. All right. Well, how yeah. about we just do? How about we'll just do mine then, and we'll skip yours. So, all right, deal. So, so my apologies. In the intro, we did mention that we were going to talk about fastener extraction, so we'll save that for next week's show. So, what what is on my mind? Is uh, I I I miss cup and cone bearings in in hubs specifically. Uh, we have seen uh, industry wide shift to cartridge bearings in hubs. I would say dating all the way back to like the mid nineties, really. Uh, it's from like the CNC era essentially. Um, and they're pretty much the standard now. Um, and in a lot, in most cases, they work just fine. They're good. Um, but I still really miss cup and cone bearings because of how so they handle side loads better. I feel like they did require more maintenance and a little bit more setup, uh, or a little bit more care and setup. But they were absolutely bomber. Like you know, you can have old Shimano hubs at this point that are 30, 40 years old that still work great. Whereas cartridge bearing hubs just don't really seem to last nearly that long, and I miss them. Understood. Don't but, disagree. But 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 I am currently finishing up a review of shimano's 105 carbon wheels the rs710 uh which have a cup and cone hub and because it has a cup and cone hub and because shimano is shimano that wheel set is currently and forever locked into a single axle fitment uh i mean there are ways that they could have worked around that but they've decided not to um it's also locked into a single free hub body because of the design. Again, there are ways they can work around that. Campagnolo, for example, have interchangeable free hub bodies on their hub and cone hubs. But the other issue that's, there are a few other issues, but one is weight as to why I think most brands have moved away from it. They are quite a bit heavier. And when you're trying to create a, a wheel set weight, that's competitive enough to actually be bought by people. Um, you're adding a hundred grams to the hub is giving yourself quite the disadvantage to kind of overcome. The other thing, and this is something that I think Camping Noah does quite well with uh, replaceable outer races in their top-end hubs. Uh, but Shimano, if you do neglect the hub and you you do run the bearings too tight or you let grit get in there and you ride them for any amount of time, you actually end up wearing out the outer race, which happens to be the hub shell. And then you have... Uh, a hub slash wheel that is now junk. Or or you wear out the cone, which is theoretically replaceable, but is oftentimes nearly impossible to obtain. Yes. So that's probably my biggest issue with these is that while they're serviceable and while in theory they're very durable, for most people that only service their hubs when it's too late, it's too late. 
with Shimano. Whereas basically every other hub on the market, you can replace the cartridge bearing and you're good again. And that that's the feedback I've had from writers who I've either recommended Campag or Shimano wheels to, and they've come back to me and their their hearts are broke taking it to bike shops to have them serviced with given the conditions we have here. And they're like, how can you recommend it? And I'm like, I love these wheels, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, like full full defense to Campagnolo and Fulcrum. I mean, it's it's honestly, it's not something I've seen a huge number of shops do, but they do actually offer like bearing units, which come with new races. And they're actually not that difficult to pull out. You just need like a, a little puller and um, you can buy, yeah, cone cone presses for them. Um, so yeah, it's it's a job that I actually quite like doing. I like rebuilding Campagnolo hubs. Um, surprisingly good at it because they seem to need it fairly often but um, but yeah Shimano is a different story because traditionally and, and what applies to these 105 hubs that's very top of mind for me at the moment is that you can't actually service that free hub body well, you can but they don't want you to it's it's kind of designed as a throwaway unit so you wear out the bearings or the, the pole system in the free hub body you need to replace the free hub body you wear out the bearings on the axle sorry I'm clearly not going to win this one no, but I, I do agree with you, James. And it's <laughs> I, I would say like uh, in defense of, you know, to, to support what you're saying, uh, a well-greased and well-adjusted Durace hub, there's there's very little that spins as, as beautifully as that when you're on the bike. I, I guess I should have added the caveat that I miss sort of like that, I guess the the theoretical advantages of cup and cone because the, re, the, the sad realities of, of modern hubs and wheels being what they need to be it maybe seems like it wouldn't be impossible to offer all that stuff with a cup and cone setup, but yeah, mm-hmm. it probably would be a lot. It would be an awful lot more complicated to do from a design and engineering standpoint. Mm. You just miss using your cone wrenches, don't you? Uh, sometimes they, they, yeah. I do use them still now, although I yes. can't remember what I use them for. But they, they they definitely are not nearly as handy as they used to be. Is it the DA two time trial bar end shifters that you use? No? <laughs> it's it? definitely uh, definitely not using them for those. Definitely uh, not using them for those. Air compressor lines. Uh, yes, I have used them for that. Actually, yeah, I've used them in use a l- little little bit of auto repair. Yep, I use them for that. Uh, yeah, I definitely have definitely have used them quite a bit. Yeah, mm. so they've they've been pretty good. I used my current right. just three times yesterday. So there you go. Oh, hey, how about that? Excellent. All right, well, let's go ahead and wrap up this week's show. Uh, we're yeah, we're 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 going to be right just just over an hour, which seems about right. Uh, I know I mentioned this at the beginning of the show, but if you have not already become a member of the Escape Collective, uh, please head over to escapecollective.cc and check out what we have to offer there. And please go ahead and sign up to become a member because uh, we are a primarily member-funded publication here, and uh, you are you you are our audience, uh, you are our customers. We work for you. Uh, and your contributions, your membership money is how we fund all of this stuff right now. So uh, please become a member. And if you haven't already uh, given us a rating and review on iTunes, please go ahead and do that as well, because that does help a lot of people find Geek Warning, which is super helpful for us. One last thing I want to mention for Geek Warning, we do have uh, live episodes that we record every now and then for our private Discord audience. Uh, it's a members-only Discord set up there. Uh, and we are going to have a Geek Warning live episode coming up in, I think, a couple weeks from now. We still have to finalize uh, the, the date uh, pending a couple of special guests. Uh, but anyway, if you are a member, please pay attention to the Discord channel because we'll make the announcement there. And if, again, if you're not a member, go ahead and sign up so you can gain access to that Discord channel. And then uh, you'll find out when we're going to do our live audience. 
Uh, I would say that uh, last week I instructed that people with a, a dirty chain, um, sorry, the per- people in the group to find the person with the clean chain and recommend Geek Warning to them and then also find the person with the dirtiest chain. Uh, I would now like you to find, um, just go around the group, go around your writing bunch, sniffing people's handlebars and find the oh, one that smells oh, the worst. No, don't do that. Yeah, find the one that smells worse, and then and then tell them that their handlebar is probably corroding underneath that stinky, gross bar tape, uh, and that this is something we discussed in a PSA previously, and that they really need to catch up on all previous episodes. Um, I have this horrible vision of Dave just wandering around Sydney, sniffing people's handlebars, and it's just not a pleasant vision. Not yeah, good. No, not no. good. I mean, it's to be fair, I'm, it's not something I'm going to do. I, I'm just asking <laughs> others to do it. <laughs> All right. Well, then, on that note, on that lovely, lovely mental image, thanks to everyone for listening, and we will see you all next week. Try not to think about Dave sniffing handlebar tape. You should see the face on Ronan. He is judging me so much. <laughs> as, so, as he should so be. Much. As he should be, Dave. <laughs> That is gross. That is absolutely gross. And I'm going to do my best to try not to think about that tonight at all or ever again. All right. Uh, See you all next week. (laughs) 